Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast brought to you from the editorial team of the award-winning Holyrood magazine. Whether you're more interested in what politicians do to relax than what they actually do in the parliament, this is the podcast where you'll get the full skinny on politics, policy and pure nonsense. Join me, Mandy Rhodes, editor of Holyrood, along with Liam Kirkcaldy, one of my award-winning writers, along with the odd politician as we chew the political fat and spit it out onto the page of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood magazine. There, there was a fairly clear warning in the interview to me that, that, that they could have devastating consequences. J.K. Rowling's ex-husband, ex-partner um, defending the fact that he'd slapped her around, um, that he'd been an abuser um, and that he didn't regret it. There's also the case recently of the swan in Edinburgh who was being targeted by graffiti. Someone wrote manky swan on a, on a bin. Poor Greyfriars, I don't think he's the problem here. Like, you don't start on Bobby. Like, I thought it's a sentence and a half. <laughs> okay, so first up we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show where we chart the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Uh, Mandy, I've got I've got a couple of ideas for this one. I think you've got something to go in on, don't you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the good news was um, re- research that came out basically saying that minimum pricing on alcohol had been a success in terms of a public health response. So a report published this week by Public Health Scotland has said there's been a reduction of between 4 and 5% in Scotland's shops in the year um, in terms of selling off sales after minimum unit pricing was introduced. Mm, that is good news, yes. It's been quite a rocky road for minimum pricing, hasn't it? It has really, but I mean, I think at the end of the day, the intention, um, especially when we're sitting amid a public health crisis, was a good one. We have an appalling relationship with drink, um, not just you and me, Liam, but pretty well everybody in Scotland. And and the biggest reduction in terms of the sales have been on cheap, strong ciders, which is is basically where they were trying to get to. Yeah, that was the, um, sort of the whole point of the policy, wasn't it, to target the cheapest yeah. booze? Yeah, and I think, you know, whenever these things are introduced, and I'm old enough to remember when uh, John Reid was the health secretary and um, he was opposed to any kind of banning on um, smoking because he felt that it was discriminating against poor people. Mm. And I guess that the same accusation has been levelled at minimum unit pricing because it's going for cheap, strong ciders. But at the end of the day, you have to balance... um, you know, people that are suffering health inequalities are also suffering uh, inequalities around poverty and discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. There are things that you do have to be able to do to help with some of those aspects of their life. Mm. I mean, the, the, the background to this was that there was obviously concern that there was going to be roving bans going to England to buy cheap booze. Um, I don't know if that's, if that's come to pass, whether there have been booze bandits doing runs down to... Carlisle or somewhere. I don't know where you'd go. Well, and and to be fair, this research doesn't really give us a, a shed any light on that because it is it, it's basically comparing off sales between Scotland and England during the same twelve month period. So anyway, the good news is that Scots seem to be drinking a lot less of mm-hmm. cheap, strong brands. But I have to say it must come slightly with a health warning because this was obviously before the lifting of restrictions. Um, and there was certainly a lot of drink, drinking being done in parks around me last weekend. Yeah, it's just the, you could see it happening almost immediately when the good weather came out. Um, yeah. I guess it's locked down, at least the bandits will be restrained, of course. 
Have you been drinking a lot? Mm, I've been... Well, I stopped drinking for a week, actually. Um, a week? Yeah, a whole clean week. Um, I normally do an enforced few days, you know, and that's basically a struggle. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, I have been drinking more. It depends. It kind of, I think for the first wee while, I was basically treating this as like a giant snow day. Not that when there was snow days at school, I used to get pissed, obviously. But, you know. Um, <laughs> like I, was, I was settling down to watch Boris Johnson's speech at six with a beer or whatever, but I've kind of restrained that now. The first drink I probably ever had was a snowball that mm. my dad used to make out of Advocat and lemonade. And I, I don't think he realised there was alcohol in it, but he good. also had that same attitude to cider. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, my, the first time I got drunk in my life was on Bacardi Breezers, and I think minimum unit pricing probably would have addressed that a bit more helpfully. Well, the mm. first time I got drunk was on an Outward Bound session to Drimmy with the school. Mm. Anyway, are other people listening to this, or is it just us chatting? <laughs> Do you want online? I've got, I've got a bad week. Go on then. Well, it's a very specific bad week, actually. Um, it's a very bad week indeed for the statue of Edward Colston uh, in oh, Bristol. Well-known slave trader. Well, yeah, although actually, in fairness, I hadn't really heard of him very much until he was toppled, as a statue was toppled, I should say, and he was thrown into Bristol Harbour. Um, yeah, he was oh. a well-known slave trader. He's, he's actually, his statue has now been removed. Um, apparently, Bristol Harbour is a working harbour, so they just they don't want a giant statue sitting in the depths of it. So it's now being hosed down, and it's going to be taken to a museum. It's kind of sparked a wider debate over the role of statues and monuments yeah. to some pretty troubling people. Yeah, well, I think what was interesting um, in what you said at the very beginning was that you didn't know very much about him, and neither did I, and uh, probably neither did um, half the country. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the point about these statues. They're everywhere. You don't notice them. They're just there. And I guess my view is we have had a troubled past. We still have a troubled past with our role in the building of the empire and the use of slaves and our complicity in that. And what I guess what I would like to see is that we understand and learn a bit more about our history. So I quite like what Edinburgh City Council have done and that they are actually expanding the descriptors on some of the statues to explain who somebody was and what they did and what their place in history was. Yeah, that's right. So that was specifically on um, on the Dundas statue, wasn't it, initially in St Andrews yeah. Square? Um, I mean, yeah, I, yeah I, don't, I don't really think statues in themselves teach you anything at all. I thought that, that plaque was good, the one that they've un unveiled for that statue. Um, yeah. Banksy had quite a good idea for the one in Bristol, which was basically to modify the statue into a monument to the statue being toppled. So you could use the ropes of, that the protesters used to pull them down, use those as support and have the protesters as part of it as well. That way you've actually got a lesson in, in, in modern history. I think it probably yeah. gives you a bit more context. I mean, in general, I don't... I mean, statues, I think, probably tell you a lot more about your present than your past. And if you walk up the Royal Mile, for example, it's a very clear story that every single statue is just of an old man. Um, and most of them were either traders. I mean, there's one to Adam Smith, there's one to David Hume, but otherwise it's basically just really rich guys who, who had trusts that paid for these statues. Yeah. In fact, I think it's true to say that there are more statues of dogs in Edinburgh than there are of women. Mm. Um, and in fact, I quite, quite like that, uh, the warning that was um, put up around Greyfriars Bobby of him being next. Poor Greyfriars, I don't think he's the problem here. Like, you don't start on Bobby. Like, <laughs> I thought it's a sentence and a half. <laughs> uh, don't finish on Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm okay with the dogs, to be honest. I like the penguin ones. <laughs> yeah, I think you should stop it there. <laughs> yeah, good point.
<laughs> I'd, I'd get rid of the Willy ones if I had a chance. I think those are absolutely terrifying. Um, you God, you're a man obsessed now. They're watching me. I, I know they're watching me. I can see their eyes following me when I go past. So, Liam, we put the mag to bed last night. Um, and yet again, another strong magazine. Very pleased with it. Um, there's a lot in it. And this was very much the launch of us talking about how Scotland's going to recover from the economic crisis, really, that the public health crisis has caused. Um, but yeah, lots in it. Good. Your column really centres on the decision to go into lockdown following a warning that if the UK had gone into lockdown a bit earlier, then a huge number of lives could have been saved. Yeah, well, Professor Neil Ferguson, remember him? <laughs> he was the he was on Sage. He's the scientist that did the modelling um, for looking at how and when we should lock down. Um, but then, of course, had to resign because he'd um, broken his own rules and uh, come out of lockdown to meet his married lover. Um, but but putting that to one side, um, the lover is married isn't the issue. Really. <laughs> well, I think the point was that there was no then perhaps concern for other people within one household. Yeah, that's true. They didn't so, think about their bubble. I wasn't making a particular moral point about uh, whether his lover was married or not. But um, anyway, the point was he broke his own rules and um, he resigned from post. But he came out this week because he was giving evidence to a committee in, in Westminster about the modelling. And he basically said that, yes, if we'd locked down a week earlier, probably half of the lives that have been lost to COVID would have been saved. Um, and I think that's that's very difficult for people coming who've been in lockdown for 12 weeks, who have really stuck to the rules, who have thought this is all for the greater good. And then to be told that actually if, if government had acted a week earlier, things would have been very different. And what my column's trying to explore really is, as we come out of lockdown, how much more complicated life becomes. Because I think when it was very much black and white, a blanket ban, you couldn't do anything. People didn't have to think, they didn't have to have to use judgment and they didn't really have to put in place any other um, resource to think about what they were doing. And now that lift, a lifting of restriction has happened, I think it's causing a lot of tensions. I mean, I'm seeing that within my own family, you know, only a couple of weeks ago, I was saying how wonderful it was having um, my son wow. home. This seems to be a recurring <laughs> theme. Um, but actually, I think it's hard for them too now. They're suddenly being told, well, you can meet. Um, and actually from next week, they should be able to meet with other households. And, and even in not that I would condone this behaviour with my son, but a sex bubble. So yeah, you've got to you've got to choose a sex buddy, basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he doesn't obviously. I'm not I'm not demanding he does. No, I'm going to suggest that he just goes to the zoo, not for sex, but to see animals, um, because that'll be <laughs> that'll be another <laughs> that'll be another choice that you can have. You could perhaps go to the zoo. Um, where actually you can quite often witness a lot of sex going on between animals. But anyway, I would prefer that um, my son sticks to the rules and the rules are becoming more complicated purely because we're getting more freedom. And um, mm. I think obviously that that is a good thing, but it does mean that we're also having to use our judgment a lot more. Um, and I guess the other thing that I talk about in the column is that there are still some who see these lockdown restrictions as some kind of um, bizarre uh, 
health and safety rules yeah. gone mad, mm-hmm. you know, and there's great great examples of that. For instance, um, Richard Tice, who's chairman of Brexit Party, going to a barbecue with his partner, Isabel Oakeshott, the, the journalist, where then there was the Tory MP, who was in fact spearheading the COVID-19 tracing app, yeah. uh, on the Isle of Wight, also present. So a whole load of rules being broken. And then, you know, they kind of belligerently said, oh, yes, we've also had our eyesight tested, as if as if breaking the rules was something to joke about when, you know, at the end of the day, the rules are there to save lives. Yeah. And then the, meanwhile, we're watching countries around the world coming out of lockdown because they probably went in a bit more extreme. You know, they, they went in earlier and probably a bit harder. And you're seeing countries around the world that things are starting to return to normality. Boris Johnson obviously yeah. made a big deal of that, that 12 week thing. And it just it comes yeah. across time and time again as if the government did underestimate this. There's, I've heard lines where, you know, there's, there's claims that, China reacted like this was SARS, and the UK reacted like it was a winter flu bug. And yeah, it's hard to escape the feeling that if more extreme action had been taken earlier, we'd probably be in a safer position for coming out now. And as you say, there's still calls for restrictions to be loosened, but that, mm-hmm. that could set us back even more. Yeah, I think you know both Boris Johnson and, to be fair, our own First Minister Nicola Sturgeon seem to be reacting to these kind of. Um, if you like that forensic questioning about what um, was done incorrectly at the beginning, in a way that they feel that this this shouldn't be being asked at the moment, that it's the wrong time for a post-mortem. But actually, if you feel, and we're already being told that mistakes were being made going in and were coming out, I think it's fair to start asking questions now too, because it's about credibility and it's about trust. and I feel there is a, an element of Boris Johnson which just does not have the empathy or the emotional intelligence that Nicola Sturgeon is showing. And I think they'll be both, they'll be judged very differently on that, even if the results of this uh, pandemic prove to be the same. Yeah. I, I, to be honest, I find it very difficult to understand how he could have been back at work so quickly. I mean, I've, I've spoken to quite a few people that did have coronavirus and they're saying even with even with cases where they didn't need assistance where they didn't need medical support they just you know that they had a few days or a week of feeling absolutely awful but they said even for a couple of weeks afterwards they felt like they'd been hit by a bus and this is a guy that needed real really quite extensive medical support and he was back at work almost well very very quickly and i find it really strange to think that that's how you would run a government i know he's the prime minister but he doesn't really look well to me no, I mean, do you know, I think that you, that's the other thing in some things that you've just said there, that we, scientists are struggling to understand this virus at the moment. They're, un- they're struggling to understand um, how it develops and they're struggling to understand what the long-term medical effects might be of having had COVID. And yet we're all walking around um, like walking medical journals, thinking we're all experts. I mean, I can't tell can't tell you the number of people I have met who have said, "Oh yeah, I've I've definitely had it, definitely had it," um, and that's just not true, <laughs> or it can't be true. We, I mean, from what we understand, um, quite a small small percentage of people have actually been infected with the virus so far. And not, not just that, we don't know if being infected by the virus or carrying the antibodies or the antigens gives you any other kind of protection from this going forward. 
And you know, I, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a heartbreaking interview um, with Kate Garraway, the GMB television presenter, whose husband, um, former Labour spin doctor Derek Draper, um, has been in a coma now for 10 weeks with COVID. And he's now COVID free. It's a, an induced coma to try and protect his body. Um, he's COVID free, but she was basically saying that it has attacked every organ in his body and they just don't know what the future holds. Terrible, terribly sad. So I think when we're all walking around like quack medics, we need to just draw it in a bit. And then, the, the, of course, the central section of the magazine is, as you said, on the on Scotland, the recovery. That's got a few different parts to it, um, including an interview with Fiona Hislop, which I think we're going to come to in a little while. Um, but there's also an interview with Caroline Gardner, the Auditor General, which I thought was really quite interesting. Um, she's she's going to be standing down from her position. Um, she's actually going off, I think, with plans to study. Uh, but she also she was quite happy to leave with a warning. I thought one of the most significant parts of the interview, it's done by my colleague Rebecca McQuillan, was a warning that her her concern at this stage appears to be that we take on a huge amount of debt in the response to coronavirus. That debt has to be dealt with, and then we see a return to austerity. There, there was a fairly clear warning in the interview to me that, that, that they could have devastating consequences. Yeah. So Caroline has been in post for eight years now. And, um, you know, in her role as basically having to go through the books of the public bodies and make sure that our money is being spent properly and well, she's had a real bird's eye view into how public bodies might have the resilience to get through this. And you're absolutely right. She says we must not return to austerity. Um She's actually going off, I think, to study ancient English literature, I think, (laughs) which seems quite a departure. Yeah. Um, So, Caroline, I also did an interview actually with Caroline for for the uh, Audit Commission because the staff wanted to hear more about her as she leaves post as well. Um, she's, She's had quite an interesting time in post because she's not been frightened to really take bodies to task and um, and really tell it how it is. And there were things that she has said in an interview with me as well about how she'd like parliamentarians to perhaps um, scrutinise uh, more effectively going forward. So that'll be interesting as well. But in terms of the austerity warning, that also came through very strongly in the interview that I did with Fiona Hislop, the Economy Secretary. Um, she was education secretary when the financial crash happened in 2008. And she remembers very well how the government had to mobilise to deal with that problem and basically said to me that this financial crash, well, the financial, cr- the economic crash that has been caused by the public health crisis um, should definitely not be dealt with in the same way that there can be no return to austerity, that we need to think about the economy and life as we know it very, very differently. I guess because of the, the package of fiscal powers that the Scottish government has, I mean, that response is going to be heavily led by the UK government, isn't it? In terms of the borrowing that will be required to fund public services. Yeah, I think there's no getting away from that. Um, and for, you know, an SNP politician, I, I said to her at the end, "Is does this put paid to any argument for independence? Well, you can imagine that she obviously said, she said no. Does <laughs> she still, still support independence? There's some questions that you think, what is the point of asking, really? Um, 
But I think the, the, the important thing or the very strong thing that came over from the interview with her was the, the need to think about life very differently. And um, she said to me that she felt that this crisis, however terrible, and it really is terrible, it has almost made people accelerate plans to thinking differently about the economy and that the time for the, the well-being economy has well and truly come. So as we all know, crisis often forces structural change and the current health crisis, which has forced an economic crisis, has also accelerated debate about building a different kind of future for Scotland, one that's fairer and more equitable, one that has people working together much better. And I interviewed the Economy Secretary, Fiona Hislop, and asked her if that kind of cooperation is also working across the parliament. Are politicians working better together? The public want this to happen. They want everyone to pull together. Um, so I think that more cooperative way of working um, should be a sign for the future. Yes, you need accountability, uh, but cooperation will be key. And we will be moving into a more cooperative society and economy going forward because uh, we're all going to have to depend on each other uh, to look after those that are in need. But also, uh, if you're self-isolating because of test and protect, you're going to need the support of your colleagues and indeed your employer uh, to get you through as well. Obviously, you worked through the financial crash um, and then everybody said that things would have to be very different in the future, almost a recalibration and we would change. And then they went back to normal. Do you think this time it's any different? Oh, yes, I, I definitely do. I mean, the financial crash was a financial crisis that ended up being dealt with for financial reasons. Um, and the cost of that uh, it has been austerity and nobody but nobody, I think even the UK government realised now, not then, now, the harm that that has caused and you need to have a strong society to be able to, to deal with the, the challenges ahead. And you know, it is that point about that wellbeing economy, we've been well on the track of that, so you know, this is accelerating that type of thinking about how do we work in a more cooperative model. And I think what's interesting is if you look at New Zealand, who have been champions of the wellbeing economy, and um, if you look at Iceland, if you look at Finland, are very interested just before the, um, the, the, the lockdown and over in Brussels, we hosted with Finland um, as part of their presidency sessions on the wellbeing economy that, you know, that type of thinking was already there, but I think it's come to the fore. So when people globally talk about the new normal, actually, we've got a bit of a route map already there in terms of the, that values-based approach that, you know, if you look at GDP estimated to have collapsed by 33% over the, the lockdown period, you know, measures like GDP do not measure necessarily uh, what is important in, in, in life and economy. So uh, we, we need to make sure that uh, those th th that type of thinking isn't just prominent in Scotland, but actually globally. Um, that, I think, uh, is a, an area where we're getting far more interest now than we would have ever had before. Really, the well-being economy was, until very recently, seen as very much a fringe event. Um, I couldn't get people really talking about it seriously. And yet Scotland has really embraced it much quicker than other places. Why is that? Yeah, well, I think, I think it's got two aspects on, on the, both the economic and the social justice um, aspect. That actually, we cannot progress as an economy unless we have a strong society. Now, that's not something that's even just a more recent thinking. That's something that has, if you look, even go back to um, 
Adam Smith, the theory of moral sentiment, etc. You know, ec- economics has always been about balances and choices. It's, ec- economics is as much political as it is anything else. Uh, when I studied economic history at the University of Glasgow, uh, you know, when I was there, it was the Department of Political Economy precisely because uh, a lot of it, uh, economics is about political choices. Uh, but if you also look at climate change and the need for inclusive growth, that actually that is the, is the benefit of, of everyone. We're looking at some of the um, the, the the pilots on the um, you know, use of uh, community wealth uh, aspects. Uh, Ayrshire's looking at just now. Uh, there's some pilots there, and, and actually it can show you can bring it greater economic activity, more jobs. And uh, you know, better paid jobs that means more demand for for local services. Now, the rethinking globally of supply chains that are disrupted, the rethinking of you know, domestic sustainability um, of supply chains and manufacturing, etc. These these are things that are happening on a global scale, but even on a very local scale, uh, resilience will be the watchword for the future. Resilience will ensure that we don't have a pandemic in the in the future. And if we can do the step change, um, for example, in terms of home working, which absolutely is the central way of working will be for, for, for some time to come, then we can make some of the big changes, for example, in transport that you know, we knew we wanted to do about, you know, as part of that well-being net zero um, economy that, that we want to be. And in talking to many businesses, and we've seen Twitter themselves have said that they you know, want people to work from home on a continuous basis. And that's something that now many companies are realising, if they were sceptical before, that actually now, they've now been convinced that people can work productively from home. Now, doing it in, you know, in, in areas we know, for example, in the financial services, uh, you know, you've got many women working in those areas. I'm not saying, saying women are the sole uh, carers, but we know that uh, during the COVID, the research is showing that women have tended to take on more of the caring responsibilities for children. You know, if you're if you're a bank worker and you're processing all these you know Seville bounce back loans um, uh, from your home and you've got you know young children around your feet, that's a huge challenge. But it's also why we've taken a, a whole systems approach to how we're uh, planning that uh, route map uh, through COVID. So we know from our discussions with businesses that we have to get the transport and uh, importantly education and childcare right before we've got any reasonable hope of trying to make sure that businesses can reopen in a productive uh, basis. But homeworking will also mean that we've got less, uh, sorry, homeworking will mean we've got fewer commuters, we can tackle some of our big challenges. We were pre-COVID, we were already thinking about could we establish uh, community hubs where people could go, um, if they were working from home, they could go and, and share premises uh, that uh, public and private sector companies uh, could host a, a sort of government reworks, if you can imagine. Uh, because people are still social animals, so local working will become increasingly the norm and continue. Actually, there's a way of doing it that should respond to the humanity we have that we need to, to meet other people. Um, so I, I do think uh, there's a lot of people and and businesses have recognised we, we don't want to go back to the old ways of doing things. Uh, we think we can go forward. And if you look at the innovation that's happened through the um, repurposing of, in, by many companies to support the essential needs of the NHS and manufacturing, the innovation, the partnership working uh, between different agencies at speed has been absolutely remarkable. We know we've seen it in the health service, we've completely reorganised the health service in a very short period of time, but in every walk of life, uh, 
in every walk of life and, and every area of business, people have, have changed and been creative and innovative. So how do we draw on that for the future? How do we change that? And how do we ensure that people can have more time with the family? I think um, people might be uh, uh, might be having challenges with the people they've been living with, and uh, you know that's a pressure, obviously, in family homes. I think up and down the country, but um, there's also been a depth of relationships formed with the children and the parents that perhaps they might not have happened uh, previously. So I, I do know you know this experience from that, I was I, I, talking to Sistema, I did a virtual tour of uh, uh, Torrey and Govan Hill and, and uh, uh, also Raplock uh, and, and I had the privilege of talking to, to families in their homes and I do think there's something about uh, the strength of relationships uh, with people um, that have helped get through whether it's uh, people's streets, their neighbourhoods, their towns, their communities and how people have responded and I think that uh, is a strength that we can't we can and we shouldn't and we mustn't lose. So relationships do matter. You know, you're talking of a different future, but you're still having to deal with the immediate crisis, the immediate problems, while still thinking about how you build for the future. So how do you prioritise? How do you, what approach do you take? Well, well, that's why I set out the economic plan uh, in four phases, response, reset, restart and recovery, um, because we knew we'd have to immediately try and keep people in productive capacity. And that was why we uh, wanted to, to, to ensure that the UK government uh, delivered on a wage subsidy scheme. So I was calling for, on the UK government to do that in my conversations with ministers again long before it was announced and I'm pleased to see it's there and that's that's been you know, very critical other countries have done it as well so we tried to use the examples of other countries to persuade the UK government it was the right thing to do and um, so that's what the grants were you know, swiftly how do we make sure that uh, uh, particularly small companies you know whose demand had completely nothing collapsed overnight and um, could get get through and so that's why we had the grant system as, as it was but what we've also done is we've used um, the consequentials that we've had we've, we've provided additional funding where we can and we've then developed a, a very distinct scheme for Scotland because we rely more on the creative tourism uh, sector for example so that's why we have the creative tourism hardship fund uh, why that was developed and also a pivotal uh, resilience uh, enterprise fund which was recognising that across Scotland from the north to the south, the east to the west, there were particular companies, and some in manufacturing and some were uh, in, in other sectors, that if they went, they would have, uh, and if they closed, they would have a big impact on the local economy. Those companies that were, that were obviously viable before COVID, vulnerable now, but vital to that national and indeed local economy. So, you know, these are, that was the pivot and the change and the development of new schemes at pace and delivered. So within a month of opening, we've, we've seen um, now £185 million pounds, uh, you know, out the door supporting businesses. To, to, to get them into that position that they can survive. But the, the issue now is restart and how do you do that on a, a, more, um, a more strategic basis as well? Um, and how do we get people to change how they're working? How do we support them to use you know, more green energy, for example? How do we ensure that in terms of uh, what, what we can do, we can actually accelerate a lot of what I know Rosanna Cunningham has been very keen to do in the, with the climate, climate change plan. So that's now central and, and nobody's questioning that. So I think the, the job of leadership is is, is to shift, uh, to shift, uh, I suppose, 
how do I explain this? To, to, to shift the mindset that the uh, division of the future, you start today. So I think we've already started doing that. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's long days, it's lots of emails, it's lots of Zoom meetings. It's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, a pleasure to, to speak to people. But I, I really miss uh, seeing people face to face. I'm sure everybody does. Um, but we just have to, every, everything's going to be different. Has this health tragedy and then the accompanying economic crisis basically accelerated all the thinking and the moves towards a vision, a well-being economy that you wanted to get to anyway? I mean, COVID is terrible and people have suffered and you know, we've got to respond to the humanity and, and the health crisis that we've, we've seen and, and we should never forget that. Um, and, you know, that's still happening now. Uh, so we've almost got a twin track Scotland where we're trying to deal with that health crisis that continues, but also try and see what's possible and what will emerge from this. Uh, I, think it, I think the crisis has focused minds and I think it's uh, accelerated a lot of the thinking and also the practice of what we have wanted to do in terms of a well-being economy and tackling um, the climate change emergency and the biodiversity uh, emergency. So I think what it's done is accelerated a lot of the, the plans and the thinking of, of what we wanted to do. But we have to take everyone with us and, some, and, and, and I think this event, how tragic it has, has perhaps turned um, people's faces to uh, faces more firmly uh, for change and change is always difficult so sometimes you know unfortunately in, 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 very, in very tragic circumstances and um, the the catalyst for an economic change has been born out of a very terrible tragedy have you been scared Fiona um I think Probably the same as everybody, that first time when you stepped out and you went to see people publicly. Uh, first time I came back into St Andrew's house, um, when I hadn't seen people outside my immediate family, I think the same as everybody else. Um, not, not scared in terms of the task I had in hand, I, I, was, I knew I had to do a job and I, I had to focus. And I, I, I just have a mindset that always looks uh, as to what's next. I think if you worry about things that are not within your control, um, then you're not productive. And my job as a, I suppose, good Calvinist expression here to, to keep going and deliver public service. So uh, I, I wasn't scared about the economy um, in, in the sense of what had to be done. I, I, I'm, I'm obviously fearful uh, for the future, but I think uh, hope um, and optimism uh, will overcome uh, everybody's either individual or collective fears. Um, if we let things uh, drive us down, they will. But I think Scotland's got a resilience, which I think is building. Um, and I think my personal resilience has, has helped me get through. But uh, everybody's human in this. People have, have, have got their own stories of COVID. Many will be sad, but uh, there'll, there'll be points that people will reflect on in the future. Um, but, you know, we, we need a bit of courage uh, if we want to attack our future uh, and responsibilities. And uh, that might sound a bit trite, but I genuinely believe it. OK, so this is the part of the show where Mandy normally goes off on a rant of some kind. Mandy, have you got some sort of rant prepared for us? Well, to be honest, this is less of a rant and more of an attempt to calm a rant down. Mm. Um 
You may have seen uh, pictures of the Sun newspaper this morning, which was basically um, a picture of J.K. Rowling's uh, ex-partner defending the fact that he'd slapped her around, um, that he'd been an abuser um, and that he didn't regret it. Mm -hmm. So just to give this some context, um, J.K. Rowling has basically found herself in a media storm for comments that she made about how she defines women as a sex and the difference between sex and gender. Mm -hmm. She had tweeted a response to an article about menstruators by tweeting that the word that they were searching for was in fact women. Um, And that coupled with previous tweets she'd made where she talked about sex being binary um, and tweets that she had liked Uh, which interestingly doesn't mean you necessarily like the article. It might mean that you're just noting it or you're bookmarking it or whatever. Anyway, that um, all put together uh, led to a whole Twitter storm of a different level, really, accusing her of being transphobic, um, of liking um, transphobic material, um, of being a transphobe. And there were really obscene threats of abuse against her, um, just real naked misogyny, which then culminated in her writing an essay expanding on her views about being a survivor herself of sexual assault and domestic violence, and in a way, I suppose, giving some context to why she believed in safe single-sex spaces for women, which is kind of where all of this discussion has begun. because it's at the heart of it, it's been around changes to the Gender Recognition Act and basically the ability for trans people to legally change their sex by simply self-identifying. Um, but that in itself has become a much wider argument about what defines a woman. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I, I personally don't believe for one moment that... Um, women who have raised issue with the conflation of sex and gender are anti-trans, or do I believe that J.K. Rowling is a transphobe? I think those labels get thrown around far too easily these days. Um, They've been thrown at me. Um, And if you're transphobic for simply stating a a scientific fact about sex being binary, then many of us would be guilty as charged. I just think it's nonsense. But I think what then has happened from all of this is I mean, to be honest, I, I can't imagine the editorial judgment that the Sun applied to get to a place where they put an abuser bragging about assaulting a woman on the front page of their newspaper. Yeah. But again, I, you know, I think for me and for lots of women who have found themselves caught up in this, it's it's about a continuum of attempts to silence women with threats, and I don't I don't like it. It certainly did come across as pretty threatening towards J.K. Rowling that front page. Yeah, I mean, have you seen the Scottish Women's Aid of a statement on it, um, which I thought was quite good? It was. Um, it says hundreds of thousands of women and children in Scotland who are living with or have survived the terror and trauma of domestic abuse just got a virtual slap by the sun for profit. Yeah. It says, um, for decades, children and women have chosen not to speak out about the abuse they've experienced because their families, their communities, their churches, their teachers, their public servants would minimize their pain and betrayal and use their words against them. Their abuser would use the platform to shame and blame them, and nothing would change. Today, the son is that abuser. It continues to add that Scottish Women's Aid will no longer provide commentary or interviews for the son, and we encourage other organizations to join us in this stance. And then it has a message of support for for J.K. Rowling at the end. 
Yeah, I guess the sun has helped actually bring uh, together people that were on different sides of mm-hmm. what for me felt like a false argument. But yeah. I mean, I, 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 I feel that this is um, a particular moment in time yet again for the sun. It's almost like the Hillsborough moment when they blamed fans for, for being crushed to death. Mm. Um, I, I, I honestly just can't imagine the conference that allowed, that went from I mean, what I suspect is a journalist was sent to find J.K. Rowling's former partner to probably try and disprove mm-hmm. her claim that she was the survivor of, of domestic abuse. And what they got was a man who was prepared to brag about it. I, just, I still find it very difficult to understand how that can end up on the front page of a newspaper. I mean, exactly. it's, it's, it's fundamentally not news. You know, it's, it's, no. it's horrific, but it's also not a news story. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, it's obviously quite a... Um, but well, I won't call it a rant, but that's all pretty depressing, well, Mandy. Yeah. It is quite depressing. And it, I guess it is an attempt to try and, with this slot, to appease what has been a kind of collection of rants, if mm-hmm. you like. Um, but if you want to be more depressed, Liam, the thing that really upset me this week, and perhaps disproportionately so, and I think that's because of the place that we're all at in terms of the lockdown and anxieties and fears and feeling vulnerable, but it was the terrible story of the little um, the baby swan, the signet, that has now died that a jogger in Richmond Park, a man, five foot six, grey hair, um, kicked it out of the way because it was in its way, his way as he was running along. Mm. Just horrible, horrible. Yeah, that's a, that is a horrific story. Um, that's it. Yeah. It's also the case recently of the swan in Edinburgh who was being targeted by graffiti. Someone wrote manky swan on a, on a bin. <laughs> and it's children's <laughs> to shame, shame the swan. They tried to shame the swan. It had some brass eye about it, I thought, really. Um, oh. <laughs> and a local woman said, imagine, imagine your swan children seeing that. How must it make you feel? I mean, obviously, that relies on the swan being able to read the message. But I, did, I saw a yeah. picture where the signets could see it. The, the dad swan could see it. You know, manky swan written all over the bin. Shamed in front of your children. It's just an awful situation. Absolutely. What, what were we going to say? Politicians should act. Politicians should act. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine, available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.